superstars. Welcome to the Up Your Creative Genius podcast, where you will gain insight and tips to stomp on the accelerator and blast off to transform your business and your life. I'm your host, Patty Dobrovolsky, and if this is your first time tuning in, then strap in because this is Serious Rocket Fuel. Each week, I interview fellow creative geniuses to help you learn how easy it is to up your creative genius in any part of your life. Hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. I have Megan O'Leary here. She is the most incredible person. You are going to love all the things that she talks about. I can't wait to get started, but I got to introduce you first. Welcome, Megan, first. Just hello. Hey there. (laughs) So let me just tell you, everybody, she's a director in the customer experience and success operations at Microsoft. Now, she'll tell you if you want to hear more about what that is. But let's just say that in her 16 years at working at Microsoft, she's driven these award winning operation improvements, digital transformation, modern technology deployment within a complex matrix environment, which Microsoft is. But she is known for her collaborative leadership, her uncanny bias for action, and for leading teams to do what people consider to be the impossible. But my favorite part of your bio was when you wrote about yourself as a coach, advocate, motivator, that you learned from your own and your clients' experiences that the true and most successful path to health and wellness stems from self-empowerment and autonomy. Oh, my God. I can't wait to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So (laughs) good to see you, too. I see you have in the background. For those of you that are just listening, she's drawn a picture of her and me, and she's got a picture of her most recent map up there. So that'll be fun to see what of those things already happen, because I know you, you draw a map and then boom, you got to draw another one like a week later. uh, The consummate activator here. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself. How did you become and do and get to who you are today? Well, okay. I live in Seattle, Washington right now. I grew up on the East Coast of the United States, spent my whole life there. My dad was what we call a beltway bandit. So anybody who lives around the Washington, D.C. area knows that means he worked for the government. He was a West Point grad. So he actually even worked with Liddy Dole and Robert Reich. And it was just an amazing place to grow up in a subdivision called Wayside and Tamarack. All the kids that grew up there, we still go and share the things we learned we did because we had a creek that ran all the way around our neighborhood. We'd go and play in the creek and we share still the stories of those times in a Facebook group, which is really fun. So the first thing that just stands out to me is your dad was a West Point grad, right? So that just tells you right there (laughs) what an incredible, you know, disciplined environment you grew up in. Yeah, well, yes. And he was a West Point hippie. Okay. All right. That's good. He was a little bit of West Point hippie. And yes, he was a disciplined, he was an engineer. And he moved out, he eventually left the government, had his own companies, did mergers and acquisitions. But I ended up staying in the Seattle area, in the Washington, D.C. area, until I was about 27 years old. Okay. And yeah, and I was a, my early career, I was a certified public accountant. I, a CPA. You didn't oh, know that. Did you not know no, that? that's no. fantastic. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I graduated when there was a bit of a recession on the East Coast. When I was in school, I went to University of New Hampshire. I worked in the controller's office, or they called it comptroller's office. 
my first job there was the registrar's office was going from accepting checks and money. Now I'm just dating myself here, checks and money to a computer system. So my job was all of the registrar ladies, they're all ladies, would scooch the little chairs up around me and I would teach them how to use their computer. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, how far afield is that today? You just really getting everybody to scooch their chairs up so yeah. you can show them like, okay, here's some magic I'm going to do on yeah. the computer. Just yeah. watch. <laughs> and they were laughing and it was kind of fun. So I went to University of New Hampshire. I went back to Washington, D.C. where I grew up, ended up getting my CPA license, worked for a real estate development company for a few years. And then my grandmother had been in Tacoma, Washington. We used to spend our summers there. She passed away, left the family a little bit of money. So me, my brother, and my mother, we decided to move to the Washington, the Tacoma area and open a bagel bakery. That is fantastic. I know. You know, I spent part of my childhood in Tacoma too. Did you know that? That one of my great aunts lived there. And so we would go there. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So you you worked in a bagel bakery. You had one. We had one. We ran it for a few years. Hard work. Learned a lot. I would say the biggest learning experience I always tell people I had from the bagel bakery was probably towards the end of my two-year run there. A woman came in and said, your cinnamon raisin bagels have no raisins in them. Why would we have cinnamon raisin bagels and not have any raisins in them? She goes, well, I can't see them. So there aren't any raisins in there. And I said, ah, so we have a big mixer and we would mix the raisins in. I said, would it help if I mix the raisins less so you could see them? She goes, that would be perfect. I said, then would you believe that they have raisins in them? She said, yes, I believe <laughs> that they have raisins in them. I can't tell you how much that left an impression on me around perspectives and different people's perspectives. Even though there were raisins in there, she couldn't see them. She didn't believe that they were there, right? Oh, so, so then how does that translate to your everyday life now when you think about that, that you have to leave a little trail of something that's more visible so that people understand that it's there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. People can't see it, smell it, touch it, whatever their favorite way to experience the world, then it doesn't exist. This woman just needed to see her raisin. I love it. So what happened after that? So after that, I moved from Gig Harbor, Washington, where we opened the bagel bakery in the nineties. And you can go back and look at Gig Harbor in the nineties. It was not Gig Harbor of today. And we sold bagels, but we didn't sell bagels like you would sell bagels on the East Coast. On the East Coast, people would buy bags of bagels and cream cheese. People in Gig Harbor, Washington, they wanted sandwiches. So it was high labor. We were fairly successful, I would say, and we didn't anticipate there being so many sandwiches that we would be making every day. So anyway, we sold that. I moved into the city and I worked and went back into accounting as a controller for various restaurants in the city. So if anybody's in the city, you would know the Beeliner Diner at the time, the Coastal Kitchen, the Five Spot, there's something called the Luncheonette. So I worked for these gentlemen, Chow Foods, they ran these restaurants. So I was their controller and I would ride my bike from restaurant to restaurant and do the books, essentially. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you end up at Microsoft then? Okay. So after that, I went to a restaurant that was across over in Bellevue and I worked there for about about a year and a half. And the gentleman that was running the restaurant and I, he and I just, I'd say we didn't get along so well. So I ended up losing my job. I'd never been fired before. So I was fired. Best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, the moment, no, but now that I look (laughs) back, best thing that ever happened. So I collected myself and I met this woman who did placements at the time. She'd help people find a job. And so I went and met with her 
still, she and I still talk to this day. And I remember I had on this beautiful suit and I went in and talked to her and said, look, you know, I'm looking for my next thing. And she looked at me and said, you need a new cycle. And I said, a new cycle. She goes, you just need a new cycle. And I said, like, what? She said, well, there's a little company called Western Wireless out in Issaquah, Washington. Those of you who aren't local and they need somebody temporarily to take a role for somebody in accounts receivable while this woman's having her baby. And I said, oh, okay. So you think that's a new cycle? She goes, yeah, it's a new company, a new industry, and you're out of the restaurants. I think it'll be good for you. So I go and I get this temporary job with uh, Western Wireless. I end up with a permanent job. Western Wireless becomes Voicestream. Voicestream becomes T-Mobile. So I did an eight-year run from, I remember us having 100,000 subscribers on the Voicestream network. And then we were purchased by Deutsche Telekom. And so I ran really all the back office systems for what became T-Mobile at the time. Wow. That is incredible. Oh my God. <laughs> That's, okay, I remember so then, when T-Mobile was happening, then became such a big kaboom. Yes. Oh, all right. So huge. T-Mobile. Yeah. We called it the University of T-Mobile because all of us that are there, again, we're all in a Facebook group and we still share information. And it was really a close knit group of people. So from there, I was recruited into Microsoft into leading a, what do they call it at the time, a customer data integration project. So it was a data mastery project. And I'd been running the back office systems for SAP, for SAP, and I implemented SAP at T-Mobile. So then I go to Microsoft and I got more into the data space. And so from there, I moved into the partner group, which I think you work with a lot of folks in the partner yes. group. So that's how do you mm-hmm. and I kind of, kind of touch base. Then I went to a field-facing sales tool implementation role. Then I moved into finance for about six years. Then I moved into um, Microsoft Consulting Services. And now I'm in the uh, organization, which is CENS, which is... Yeah, fantastic. Well, and what I know from you is that even in the time that I've known you, you've moved around in there. And that's the, I think the beauty of Microsoft is that once you get there, you can move around a lot into different organizations. You can have different roles, you can expand yourself and, and you certainly have. Now, what in the world do you think, did you enjoy all that movement? And then what happened to you after that? When I oh, met you, you Microsoft? had just recovered from cancer. So say a little bit about what that oh, did. Oh, yeah, that, that happened in the middle of it. Well, so my philosophy at, at Microsoft has always been, I would come in, build a strategy, put together the plan, implement, and I always finished what I started, always. But once I finished what I'd start, if there wasn't something exciting where I was, I would look for something new and different. Something else. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Easily yeah. bored. Got to move on, right? Yeah, I think that's part of my nature. Yeah. And, you know, I I think I have a pretty good brand at Microsoft and I'm known for getting things done. I'm known for, as you mentioned in the bio, working effectively with others. And as you mentioned, in the middle of my career in finance, I was in finance six years, probably longer than I've ever been any place. I ended up with a cancer diagnosis and, you know, it was um, a hard time for me, a really hard time. Yeah. Well, I, and you were in a relationship at the time, right? And you have a young son. I do, right? I'm 14 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but at that time, you know, that must have been really scary for you. How did you cope with all of that? Yeah, cope is an interesting, I don't think I did cope. It's interesting, Patty. Look and see if I have it. I do have it. I know that not everybody can see the video, but I was thinking about one of my coping things that, or something that happened. And, I'm holding up this book called Megan Bear Adventures. 
And I love that. <laughs> I ended up going out of the office for about three months, ended up with a double mastectomy because I had cancer in both breasts and different cancer in both breasts. And while I was gone, my team purchased this. It's a, I'll describe it for folks. It's a rainbow bear and it would light up. You can see the lights. And while I was out for three months, they would take the bear to meetings. Oh. There was an outing, there was a party and they took the bear to the party. And so they I created love that. this book. That is so sweet. Is that the sweetest thing ever? That is really, that is so amazing. And one of the things that to me is amazing about you is that you claimed your health. You reclaimed it. And so say a little bit about what you did, because you're a complete biohacker. I mean, you check your metrics all the time about where things are. And so talk about how you learned about that and what you did to help yourself really cure yourself. You really did. I did. So talk I about did it. cure myself. And the way I describe it to people is, this is the metaphor I use when I talk to folks. And when you're involved in a diagnosis, you know, you're talking to the person that's giving you the diagnosis and they have a perspective. What I came to learn is, and this is my beach ball metaphor, and I'm writing about it right now. If I'm sitting here and you're sitting across me, Patty, I'm looking at the yellow stripe on the beach ball. You're looking at the red stripe, Right. There's yeah. somebody over here looking at the blue stripe and another person looking at the green stripe. Yeah. Each one of those stripes is a doctor or a therapist or oncologist or someone within the world giving me a perspective on my diagnosis and my prognosis. And what yeah. I realized is I can't just listen to the one stripe story. I need to get up on top of the beach ball and look down at all the colors and really listen to what people are telling me and then figure out what's going on in my body. I do a lot of testing. I do a lot of blood draws and different tests, different modalities. I even have a continuous glucose monitor that I wear every day to see what my blood sugar is doing. And so I test and I assess and I make decisions on what I think is right for me to do. You know, I did. Meaning what you need to eat and how much Mm -hmm. sleep and things Mm -hmm. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not perfect in any means with this. It's hard. I just looked at the options. I did the research. I had the mindset of everything's a good idea until it's not a good idea. And so I would look at, and being somebody who worked on machine learning and I know statistics, I would look at the statistics and what folks are saying. And in in the cancer space, it just turns out that the treatment tends to, in a conventional way, go towards the worst case scenario. If you look at anything, there's a sign curve to it. Yep. There's the right side and there's the left side and then there's the middle. I decided I didn't want to plan for the worst. I wanted to plan for the healthiest. Yeah. The healthiest alternative how I could be the most vital, how I could live as long as I possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you did. And so you are. And that's what's true. All right. And so part of that is you took that three months to really take care of yourself. But then how did you change? Because I think oftentimes, and this is just my perception, and you can say what drove you into having that kind of activating that cancer gene that you had. Right. But I often feel like stressful environments where you're working too much, not sleeping enough, eating really crappy food, and all these things contribute to the activation of it. Mm -hmm. And what did you change in your behavior as a result of getting that? What changed in you or what didn't change? Because so many things did. Right. Yeah. You know, one story that I haven't told a lot of people it was a four years ago this month that I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And a month after that, I got on an airplane and flew down to this church called Agape. 
Mm. I'm not somebody who's generally very religious, but Agape, it's run by um, Reverend Beckwith. Do you know him? Yes, yes. And he had a guest there named Joe Spenza. And so I went there and I actually met some fantastic people. I'm so friends with them today. And I ended up having a conversation with Reverend Beckwith about my situation. I said, look, I was just diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm super stressed out about it. And he took both of his hands and he put them right above my chest and he closed his eyes. And I'm standing there. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure really what's going on here. <laughs> and it was, it was about a minute and he opened his eyes and he said, you are going to live a long life. And I realized one of the keys to living that long life was to rethink some things, but also that connection that I had with him in the moment was amazing. Later that day, I got to meet Joe Dispenza, a friend of mine that I met there, knew him very well. And I had a conversation with him around, you know, hey, what does it take? What should I do? And, and he and I had a conversation. And he said, you know, you have to make the choices that work for you. There's probably not a path that's the same for everybody, but you have to make the choice for you. And I was actually going back and forth around mastectomy, not to have a mastectomy. And yeah. he looked at me, he said, it may be that getting a mastectomy is going to help you jumpstart your health. And I thought, well, I had never really thought about it that way. You know, that you can get through some of the dysfunction in your body and you can jump, start your health. So with that, that was kind of my start on what would become the journey of the last four years. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you said in your bio is that you believe that the successful path is through self-empowerment and autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so autonomy is like you in the beach ball, right? Mm -hmm. And self-empowerment is you reclaiming your choices, right? Not being victimized by it. Did you ever find that you felt victimized by the experience where you just had some days where you're like, why did it happen to me? And like that? Yeah, definitely poor me syndrome. Yeah, definitely poor me syndrome. And one of the things that you asked kind of the why of this or, you know, what happened? What did I change? I had some roles over the years that I would get up at five in the morning. I would do cardio. I would jump on phone calls. I would work all day. I'd try to take a break in the middle of the day, but I'd be back on phone calls at nine or 10 at night. So I was running a pretty long day, Patty. Yeah. And, you know, even the breaks I was taking during the day didn't help me refresh. And often I would choose cardio over sleeping and when I think back on those days or I even look at some of the sleep tracking, I would have nights with yeah. four hours of sleep. Yeah. And now seven hours is what I. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you actually was, okay. So if that was your day in the past, what's your day in the present? What does it look like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what I found for me is I prioritize sleep. Yeah. So if I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, I'm, I've got something going on. I'm not going to go to bed till 10. I'm going to sleep in rather than getting up and working out. And I do prioritize working out. It's very important to me to move my body. In fact, I yeah. move my, ba- my office into the basement and I have a workout room right across the way so I can run over and ride the bike or do something. So it's a little more integrated to my, with my day than separate and apart. But I'd say sleep first is definitely the magic for me. Yeah. And also the other piece is that you got a place up on Camino Island during mm-hmm. that same time, right? Mm-hmm. So you were able to get out mm-hmm. into... I don't know, the woods, as much as you can get in the woods, right? You're right on the water there. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think these things play an important role. But then how did your wife deal with it and your kids? I mean, how did your son deal with it? Oh, you know, my son's been great. You know, he had empathy at two. They say that they don't have empathy at two, but he did have empathy at two. I do think he's still protective of me. Yeah. You know, because I think he felt like he was or could lose me. So he does have a little bit of 
protectionism towards me and Shannon, my wife, it was just a jolt for both of us and it brought us closer together. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, she's such an amazing coach in her own right, you know, just getting people motivated to change their life and get things going. So, I mean, it's an amazing combo, the two of you, number one, and also that you were able to really transform yourself and four years, that's all it's been. So I think I met you right at that time when you had just been, you know, you had gotten your first clear from that. When you went to the doctor, they said that it was clear. It was so, clear. It, it came back and cleared and came back and cleared you know, several times. And I, you know, I finally figured some things out. I mean, you know, this about me, I'm you know, 40 pounds lighter than I used to be. I also prioritize connections with others and connection with myself and be mindful of what I need and super mindful of what I want from other people. And then something that's also important is what are those boundaries for my life, you know, to have the relationship with my family, to spend the time with my family, to be able to get the sleep I need and the work out. So, you know, boundaries in this type of situation become really important. And I would go back to the bear and the, the people that worked for me and yeah, how loving and caring they were for me. And while I was gone, they covered for me. When I came back, they made sure that I had the time I needed to take care of myself because I was doing things like high dose vitamin C twice a week and hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen tank <laughs> I'd get into for 90 <laughs> minutes. So I had a lot of things I was still doing and they were fantastic, you know? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I just think that one of the things that I really admire about you and appreciate is that you're always looking at what the next thing is that you have to do, whether it's in your career or whether it's in your health, you're always trying to figure out, well, now what, now what do I need to do? And so when you think about the now what for what you're doing now, what do you envision for yourself? I know you appreciate your work at Microsoft, but what else are you doing or thinking about? Are you doing any writing? What's happening? I love to write. I was a journalist before I was anything else. When I was younger, I was on the school paper. It was interesting how I got away from that. And I'm back at it now. I actually have someone who edits my writing for me so I can, can write more. I'm writing my beach ball story right now. All right. And usually on my the anniversary of the finding out I had breast cancer, I try to write something as well. So I'm in the middle of that right now. And for me, I've started to coach. I bring some folks on, on scholarship that I coach on. How do you work through an early diagnosis? What are the things that you can think about how can you create your own board of directors around the beach ball and how do you want to be with it? What do you need to do to get your mind, body, and spirit back to where you need to be? So I do work with women in that, in that regard. I am working. I I'm a certified primal health coach with Mark Sison. I'm a certified heart math coach. Do you know heart math? Yes, of course. Heart math? Okay. It's yeah. all about heart coherence, head heart coherence. And so it's a practice that I have as I use their biofeedback tool to, to look and see how's my coherence and what can I do to make sure I'm going to do a, maybe a stressful situation. How can I manage it more effectively? But right now I'm studying to become a health and wellness coach through the Functional Medicine Institute. Oh yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 And finishing up something at a training program, it's called the Terrain Advocacy Program with Nisha Winters, who wrote the Metabolic Approach to Cancer. I'm finishing that up right now. It's all about how to help people assess with their doctor what's happening with their terrain so they can have the right plan to do what I did essentially. And then I'm doing something really fun called foundation training. Have you done that? No. What's that? Foundation training is all about breathing and posture. Think about having a lot of scar tissue in your chest and it can cause your body to pull in. And so I found foundation training as a way to open my body back up 
and then also help with some back pain that I had. And it's a series of, of movements that pulls you out and decompresses your body, but creates a spiral such that you can, you can move in a healthier way to not pull yourself out. I love that. I got to do that for sure. You know, Mm -hmm. I got that scar, that railroad scar. I got to do something with that. That's good. Yeah. I'll have to have that conversation with you offline. That's fantastic. Now behind you, you've got a vision map up there. So I know that we've done many a vision map together. Mm -hmm. So tell me what's in that vision of the future for you. What's up there on that picture? Well, I don't know if this is the last one. Well, it must be because what's in there for me is when I decide I'm going to leave from Microsoft, when I have no idea when that is, how do I expand upon this coaching that I'm doing right now with people to help them find their own path? And, you know, I want to spend more time doing that. I want to spend more time learning these different modalities and ways to help people because I love doing it. For someone who did not do well in high school biology, you know, just for me to have learned all of this and picked it up. And even this foundation course, I'm going through all the anatomy and physiology, how the body works, just for me to, to bring more of that into, into the world to help more people is really what, what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to be so fantastic at that. I know that I have been like pushing you to do that for a long time. I'm like, get out, do it. But one mm-hmm. of the things that you talk about is you talk about some people's perception of cancer and how they have it and what they say about it. Can you speak a little bit about that? You know, where people just talk about it, what happens to them when they get it, what they talk about when they beat it. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that some people become the diagnosis and they become the prognosis. I get a little frustrated when I hear someone say, I was told it's not curable. Well, it's not curable the way they define curable, but I can take it back to my Joe Dispenza conversation and the power of intention. And I'd never want to live my life with something uncurable. I would reframe that in whatever way possible Yeah, for myself. Yeah. And and what else? Good. Because we've talked about this before and I'm curious, like, so if somebody's stuck in that mindset, you know, when people give you a diagnosis and they say you only have four months to live, I remember they said that about my mother. We never told her that. We never told her that they had said that because- we're like, yeah, they don't know. They really don't know. Don't and know. so she lived longer than that. And who needed to know that, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Nisha Winters, that I was mentioning I study with, she had ovarian cancer, was given very little time to live. She was really sick and she's 50 years old. She's still with us today, teaching everybody, had worked with a thousand people and then teaching others how to have the right conversations around your terrain and your body. And you know, one of the other pieces is, as you're sitting there around the beach ball again, talking to the oncologist and they're giving you the path forward to do your research, to understand and, and not Facebook research. You know, you, I love when I go to Facebook and someone says, I've got this diagnosis of cancer. What supplements should I take? And I always say, well, go and get your blood tested and get your genetics <laughs> yeah, tested exactly. and understand what you need. Um, you don't need what I took or you don't need what somebody else took. You need to know what you need. You know, and you know, for me, when I look back on this, I needed to get more connection with my community. I needed to get more connection with myself. I needed to have the right boundaries. I needed to sleep more. And so the sense, what I put forward with people is get really clear what you need and don't get so stuck in the prognosis of it all. Yeah. Because even if you have a day to live, that's a day. You know, how are you going to have that to be the best day you've ever had? Yeah. Yeah. I would Does that uh, answer your question? Yes. And I was thinking too, there's something about uh, belief, right? And so you, in a way, you always set yourself up for success 
by what you believe. And that is something that I know to be true for you Mm -hmm. is that, you know, you rarely doubt yourself unless somebody says something and you think what, (laughs) you know, but you really have been very forward moving in terms of your career and also in terms of your health, like you're not passive at all. And I think that's part of making good change is not being passive, realizing that everything without exception is here for you to grow from, right? And so grow. So when you think about that whole trajectory of what you went through, what did you learn? What did you learn from it? What was your big aha? Well, that curiosity is the way forward, that you really need to embrace knowledge, you know, learn the things that if you didn't learn biology, learn some biology so you know what people are talking about. Don't just hand anything over to any one doctor. And doctors are people too. They have their own limitations and not every doctor knows nutrition, you know, so create that right team for yourself, integrate perspectives from as many people as you possibly can and don't get stuck in the dogma. Don't get stuck in your own beliefs. You know, my belief was that I could get better. And I had a vision of what better looked like, but I continue to ask questions, you know, am I making the right decision? And let me look at all sides of the story and then continue to adapt is as things change as there's new information, then continue to adapt for sure as, you know, as things move forward. Yeah. And when you think about, so people that are listening who want to be a better leader or want to pivot in their career, I mean, you're the consummate change maker. That's what's true. It's like mm-hmm. when you feel like this is boring, I'm done with this, you move on. And what would you say to someone who feels that way, but isn't quite sure how to make that leap? What would you recommend to them that they think about and consider and then do? You know, and this may be a little bit different than you're thinking about. I'll say, you know, at Microsoft, it's been as much about my network as anything else. Yes. Like who I know and hey, hey, I'm looking around. What's the, the next thing? Do you have any ideas? And it's always through the connections that I find the next thing. Now, yeah, so your network is everything, right? Network is everything. It's everything. I thought my smarts, my brain was everything when I was 22, <laughs> 23 years old. I was kind of a pain in the ass, actually. I'm in a different place now. And I'm like, oh, I need other people. You yeah. Know, I need other people. Yeah. Network is everything. Well, if you were to just tell us a little bit about what you're reading right now, or what are you into right now so that we can get a glimpse into what the future is. I know you're writing again, so you're going to write a book that's going to happen, but what are you reading? I am reading Eric Goodman's book that just came out. He's the foundation guy. It's about a little bit about foundation training, but it's about pain, about cannabinoids and uh, the cannabinoid system. A little bit about THC, interestingly enough, and he's interviewed and has stories about a lot of the people that he worked with over the years. So I'm reading his book. It just came out, I think about four weeks ago, because I'm going to meet him at the end of the month when I go for the training, the foundation training I was mentioning to you. And then I'm reading another book. I'll have to share it with you. It's about movement. So I guess where I am in this whole journey right now, whereas I was in a body and I was in a mind um, is really movement. How do I move my body and how do I move things through my body? It's really kind of where I am. It's incredible to me that every time I talk to you, you have done something amazing and new, that you've learned something that's 
like a totally different health hack mm. or something that you're exploring to see what does this do? How can I use it? So when you turn your practice on, you turn Microsoft off and this practice on, it's going to be incredible for people that need help. And, you know, you told me at the very beginning, you talked a little bit about a podcast that you had done. Can you say a little bit more about where people can find that? We'll put it in the show notes as well, but what's your podcast about? Yeah, it's with um, Ageist Magazine. A gentleman named David Harry Stewart started this. He's a photographer and he's now a bit of a journalist. And so he interviewed me. He and I met through similar, I'll call it similar way that I met you. And he and I started talking. He goes, let's do a podcast. I go, that'd be fun. So we just did it last week, came out yesterday. Did I tell you my birthday was this week too? Yes. Okay. Happy birthday. I can't remember if I told you that. So that podcast goes through everything that I've done, soup to nuts on, um, because it takes a while to go through it. Like the red light, I've got a cold plunge tub and just, I go through all of it there. Okay. And so it's with Aegis Magazine. And, okay. Uh, We'll look for that. That's fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with. And I know that the next couple of years are going to be very exciting because we're going to hear a lot more from you and your story. So everybody, you know the drill. Just follow Megan O'Leary. You can find her on LinkedIn, but there are a bunch of other places you can find her in the show notes. So follow her. And I just can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing your story with me and all the things about how you became who you are today. I know everybody's going to want to hear the story, especially about you curing yourself. So thank you so much for everything today. And I could talk to you forever, by the way. So it's. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So we'll bring you back. We'll do it that way. I can't wait. Okay, everybody, you know the drill. If you like the podcast, pass it on to your friends. And until next time, up your creative genius. Thanks again, Megan. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to DM me on Instagram your feedback or takeaways from today's episode on Up Your Creative Genius. Then join me next week for more Rocket Fuel. Remember, you are the superstar of your universe and the world needs what you have to bring. So get busy, get out and up your creative genius. And no matter where you are in the universe, here's some big love from yours truly, Patty Dobrovolsky and the Up Your Creative Genius podcast. That's a wrap. 